Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and I'm very excited tonight to introduce our pre-recorded guest, Dr. Larry Norris. He is a pastor with United Methodist Church. Now listen, you know, I have had to have run-ins, and I thought this was the norm for Christianity growing up uh, for the past, you know, almost 20 years in it, that everybody is just this is the way it is and you must do it this way and you must think this way and I haven't had the opportunity to meet people who kind of are more a little bit like me and you know who kind of see people with a little bit more compassion and a little bit less dogma and that is what I found in our interview with Dr. Larry Norris and I'm so excited for you to watch it because I get to actually sit on a stage with a, a, a man who knows his stuff has been around the block wait to hear his, his story and, but he also has a real deep love, not only for Jesus, but for people. And it comes out, and I think he embodies Christianity uh, so well, and so I'm really honored to have him. But before we do it, I wanna tell you a couple things. Next week, um, I've spoke with Sam Young, and Sam is going to be on the show to give us an update on how his fast is going, and his inviting LDS apostles to come and sit with him, and so he's going to join us next Tuesday night at the opening of the show. And then our guest is going to be Marty Steinberg. He is a confirmed atheist. And uh, he, he really has a distaste for the evangelical right and uh, some real heartburn with what he calls reward punishment methodologies that organized religions use. And Larry's been around, I mean, Marty's been around the block. And so he will be our atheist guest next week and hopefully we're going to be able to break down some barriers and talk with each other. The following week, on August um, 21st, we're having Dan Ellis, who is the secretary of the Atheists of Utah organization. He's also a co-host of Godless Revolution. Why do people say revolution now? How come no one says revolution? They write revolution everywhere. Someone explain that to me later. My daughter's probably well. But he's part of the Godless Revolution podcast, and he'll be joining us on August 21st. And he's a, a hard, fast atheist, and so we're going to have two atheists in a row. And then finally, on August 28th, we're going to have Professor Claire Peterson, Professor of Humanities here in Salt Lake City, a former LDS. And from what I know, talking about Claire, religion doesn't seem to matter much to her anymore. I'm not sure what her views are on God and things. She's a mother and, uh, and, and et cetera, but for, now former LDS, a smart woman. So we're going to have three unique guests who aren't really religious after we have Dr. Larry Norris, who you're going to see right now. You can't believe how hot it is. <laughs> Look at this. No, I'm just kidding. Welcome, everybody. I'm so excited for our program tonight. And as you know, we have gone through and had different um, representatives from different uh, uh, denominations of Christianity. We've had more Calvinists, uh, more Presbyterians than I've really wanted over the years. Uh, and then we've had a Catholic priest recently. Uh, we have a uh, uh, Church of the Brethren coming up. We have an Amish uh, pastor coming up. And we have a few other denominations, but right now uh, we have someone who's not just a reverend pastor. Uh, he is the dad of a, one of our congregates here at campus. 
uh, Larry Norris, who there, we did a show with him uh, a little while ago. And he, Larry has a phenomenal story, but behind that story are the parents. And that will come out in a minute. But first, let me introduce to you Dr. Reverend Pastor Larry Norris Sr. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. Thanks for being Wonderful on with us. Wonderful to be here. Wonderful to be here. Uh, yesterday, we were able to have some dinner together and got to know you a little better and uh, heard about your background, which I think is really important for our audience because it's gonna help kind of set a foundation of where you are presently. And then if we can talk just for 15 minutes after we learn about where you came from, uh, about, so you can teach us about the Methodist church. I, I wanna know some of the key things about the Methodist religion and then how close you are with it and do you veer from it, things like that. And then we wanna talk about that youngest son of yours Larry Norris. Okay. And you guys at home, that is the story. This, this is the real lesson here. You're going to hear some great lessons, but this is the real lesson. Uh, is the parenting of a Christian man and his wife of their son through something that most Christian parents fail in, at least in my experience. So we'll talk about that. But tell us about yourself. All right. I was... Um a product of parents who spent their lives in the Air Force. And I was born in uh, 1944, and um, I have a twin brother. And later on, I would have another brother, many years later, mm. named Jeff. Uh, my twin brother's Terry. And we grew up um, in the Air Force. And over the years, we... Um, we lived all over the country. We, we lived in California and Florida mm -hmm. and Texas and Illinois mm -hmm. and of course Michigan. And so early years, I never spent very long in one particular school. We were moving every, every year and a half to two, to two years. Wow. Yeah. And, and then uh, as time w went on and as, as we grew, we eventually um, settled in Florida where my dad was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was in the business of um, being a navigator in B-47 jet bombers. And he, he lost his life in a tragic accident over the Isle of Pines in Cuba. And after that time, um, my brother, brothers and myself and my mother, we went back to Michigan because that's kind of where the home base was. How old were you when you lost your dad? 12 years old. Wow. 12 years of, of age, which is a tough time yeah. to lose to lose a parent. Yeah. Wow. And so we went back, and I remember taking several years to really deal with the loss and, and the grief. It was very it was very hard mm -hmm. for me personally. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you that um, my my mother, um, it was hard for her to cope with that and deal with that. In some ways, I don't know if she ever really got over that her wow. whole life wow. that loss. She managed to move on, but I think it was really a, a struggle at times. The saving grace in a lot of that transition through those years of going into junior high and high school um, was the church. Because at that time, my um, mother and my grandparents belonged to the Wesleyan Methodist Church. And so during those years of being a teenager, we attended the Wesleyan Methodist Church. Mm. I, I can't tell you my heart was in it. And uh, I can't tell you I love getting up and going to Sunday school. 
because that really wasn't the case. But with grandparents that said basically, you're going to go, and a mother that said, you're going to go, we were there. And so the church and my grandparents um, were just remarkable people during that whole time of transition. They were great. I, I can truly say they were great Christian people. Wow. Uh, my grandmother played the organ in the church, was devoutly spiritual. My grandfather taught um, Bible classes in the church and was on various committees. But the Wesleyan Methodist Church um, taught basically the importance of having an experience um, of Christ in your life. Um, the church that I grew up in, it was not a hard sell, but people encouraged it. And there were altar calls, actually altar calls. And wow. I can remember being encouraged a few times to go to the altar call. Did you go up? I did on a couple occasions. Did yeah, it work? Ex exactly. I, I just thought I'd better do that. <laughs> <laughs> Keep everybody happy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you played it well. The real experience would come later. Right. right. That and is so important. That was, but that was, but but all I was being programmed and in, mm -hmm. in understanding something about basic Wesleyan theology mm -hmm. at that time, because even though I'd eventually become a United Methodist pastor in the United Methodist Church, a lot of the same beliefs were the same. They came out of that very rich Wesleyan well uh, of teaching about uh, of grace and, uh, and love and the love of, of God. Um, it's the Arminian view, as you would you know, understand. So as time went on and uh, we um, went through junior high school and high school and eventually um, decided to go to Michigan State University. Oh, wait, um, hold on one second, I forgot this. I okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All right. Did you bring my cat, my hat, Deb? <laughs> she didn't. No, she didn't. I'm, I'm sitting here with no green and white, and here I've got the blue and gold. I've got to look at. At dinner, at dinner last night, he 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 showed his visible. He's a great man of God, but there was a disdain in his face for Michigan. This is where our youngest daughter uh, attends graduate school. So out of respect, I am going to remove it. But let me tell you something. When these cameras are off, I'm putting it right back on. All right. All right. Very good. Very good. Okay. <laughs> and I will not say the name Michigan. Okay. okay. <laughs> As in Wolverines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for the rest of this time. All right. I guess we can continue yes. now. We got that barrier out of the way. <laughs> it's like denominationalism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's right. So time uh, passed, but um, I had a I had a remarkable experience. My senior after my senior year in high school, I went I went to a summer camp in Michigan, and the camp um, was called Barakel, and it's actually I believe a Hebrew word that means where God has blessed. And it, and it was a Baptist camp. Huh. And I had a remarkable experience at that camp of inviting Christ into my life. This was the real deal. Yeah. And um, I'd been going to church for years. I understood the essential message. But this was an event where I decided I took seriously what was happening with my faith. How old were you? I was 17. Wow. 17, yeah. Hmm. And so then, from that point on, I went to Michigan State um, University and actually looked at a number of options. Um, I believe, if I recall, I was, I was pre-med for a while, 
and looked at law and then just felt like the call of God in my life to go into ministry mm. was a focused reality for me. Mm. And as you know, there's that old expression that says, if you can do anything else, don't go into ministry. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but that was the only place I saw myself moving. That's so, definitely a call from God, isn't it? It, it was, it yep. was for me. Yeah. I know calls come in different ways to people and they experience, you know, Christ in different ways. Mm-hmm. But that was certainly real for me. Mm. And the call was real. Mm. And uh, that's, that experience um, at that camp and what happened in my life has been just a um, grounding for me my whole life when mm. things got really difficult. Mm. I go back and I remember that. And it's been, been helpful mm. through good times as well as difficult times. Sure. So I went to Michigan State. Then I went uh, to Asbury. Theological Seminary, which is an evangelical sem- uh, seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Hmm. And um, even though um, it was a um, evangelical seminary, there were people there from all different denominations, and probably 60% of the young people studying there were, were people going into United Methodist hmm. ministry or Free Methodist or Wesleyan Methodist. It was, it was definitely a Wesleyan-centered theological seminary. Can you, I'm putting you on the spot, just explain for us what the, different, the differences are between those three main approaches to the Methodist? Yeah. In a, in a nutshell, uh, the Wesleyan Methodist, the Free Methodist, the Methodist Church, and the United Methodist Church all came out of the same Wesleyan teachings. The Free Methodist Church and the Wesleyan Methodist Church split in the 19th century uh, from the broader Methodist group over the issue of slavery. Wow. Yeah, and um, they were opposed to slavery in the strongest way, and so the Free Methodists and the Wesleyan Methodists split primarily over that issue, but there were also issues um, that uh, focused on polity and, and discipline, church government. Mm-hmm. They were far more decentralized than mm-hmm. the Methodist Church, which is really essentially an, an Episcopal framework. It moves from the top down. Mm-hmm. And of course, John Wesley came out of the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. He was Church of England. Yeah. He never wanted to leave it. He never did, and he never did. Mm-hmm. And so the what, Methodist Church started because of his work and his efforts, but it was all um, um, because of his devotion to the Anglican Church and that's, or the Church of England, and that's why today, if you go to many United Methodist churches, you will find uh, considerable liturgy wow. that still has tinges of high church, even, wow. and has tinges of um, um, Church of England kinds of things. Fascinating. Um, yeah, and the Methodist Church also continued on, but it split into several African American groups um, in the later um, 18th century and through the 19th century and actually the Methodist Church was it's uh, the key the key core of Methodism in the United States and then um, in 1969 the um, Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren came together and they formed the uh, United Methodist Church so you know the history of denominations. There's just splits, and they come back, and they yeah. redefine, and and and, the, and that kind of uh, kind of thing. 
So the United Methodist Church has been around since 1969, mm. Mm. and um, has as as a denomination. Mm. Yeah, 69. Yeah. Uh, really quickly, between those who uh, have an affinity for one or the other, is there, is there love or is there animus? Between those yeah. groups, uh -huh. I think there's goodwill. Is there? Good. Yeah, there's goodwill. There's there's not a lot of um, fighting and oh, good. and uh, throwing of stones. Th mm -hmm. Those groups they kind of function in their own way and have their own um, groups and. I think, if I can make a general observation, I think the Wesleyan Methodist Church, which is now the Wesleyan Church because they merged with the Pilgrim Holiness Church in the late 60s, and they wow. became the Wesleyan Church. The Wesleyan Church and the Free Methodist Church, they would probably tend to be a little more evangelical generally than the United Methodist Church. So there'd be some probably more conservative doctrine in uh, the, the Free Methodist and the Wesleyan Methodist. Got it. Yeah, and in the United Methodist Church, you know, you and that's that's soup to nuts, soup to nuts, huh? Yep. Wow. I could talk about that all day, but yeah, we don't uh, have the greatest day. threat. Do you think right now? I mean, just to throw it out there, to the United Methodist Church. You know, I'll tell you the the greatest threat right now, um, probably focuses on the diversity of. Uh, opinion about our social issues. Mm. In our book of discipline, um, we have 65 stated positions on social issues. And social issues are a huge part of the focus of the United Methodist Church. In fact, and that grows out of the history of Methodism mm. and John Wesley because mm -hmm. he was so involved in bringing and working towards social change. So if you talk about social change, and um, social issues, even though we're a couple hundred years later, um, that, that goes right back to John Wesley. Mm. That's why he got out of the Church of England. Mm. The churches were empty. Nobody was going to church, mm. kind of like what we're getting to today mm -hmm. in some ways. Yeah. It's revisited today. Mm -hmm. But So here's John Wesley, and he realized that the power of faith and the power of, you know, having a strong spiritual grounding, but people were moving away from it. So he got out of the churches and went everywhere he could. Mm. Factories, schools, mm. orphanages, you name it. Bars, he'd preach mm. in bars. Good man. But the point is, is that tradition is carried into the United Methodist legacy. We have a book of discipline that has these stated social principles um, in them, and they're very important to who we, we are. Mm. And if, if one thing United Methodists believe commonly is that our social issues are important and they can be changed and there's a long process to change them and they can only be changed at what we call the General Conference and mm. that meets every four years. Okay. It's a big deal. And right now we are in this huge debate about the issue of sexuality. Mm. There's other really hot button issues. One is uh, immigration, mm. okay? Whoa. Immigration, of course, being in the conference I'm from in Arizona, <laughs> it's that's a really alive. Okay, that is hot that's a that's a hard, difficult issue mm -hmm. in Arizona, um, and of course then there's the sexuality issue, which is a very important issue. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also other issues like abortion and capital punishment and mm -hmm. environment, and those are all a part of what we talk about a lot in in our church. Sexuality issue is the biggest issue 
of all. Now, when you say sexuality, what do you mean? I'm talking about um, heterosexual versus homosexual lifestyle. Okay. It's about lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And it also involves our discipline because our discipline states, and this is where a lot of the focus of the controversy is, because our discipline states that as a, if I'm a open practicing homosexual, I cannot be ordained to be a clergy person in the United Methodist Church. That's what it says now. And it also says that I, as a United Methodist ordained clergy, cannot do a wedding ceremony for um, a gay person or two gay people who want to get married. Mm -hmm. So the huge debate right now and the thrust is that um, we want to change the discipline. And I personally really am in favor of changing the discipline. Mm -hmm. I think it ought to be opened up. Mm -hmm. And these are things that have been there a long time. We were debating this in our United Methodist Church in the early 70s. Every year we fight about it at our conferences. It comes up as a huge issue. And it's a sensitive issue. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I have my own beliefs about it. And other United Methodists will have their own beliefs about it. But it's come to such a fever pitch right now mm -hmm in the United Methodist Church that it really does have the capacity to splinter our denomination. Wow. And there's a commission that's been working on this issue now for a couple of years called the Commission on the Way Forward, and they are presenting at a special general conference in early uh, 19, uh, a few months from now actually, um, the results of their work and what they're going to recommend to the next general conference. Mm -hmm because the next general, that's the only place the discipline can be changed, mm. is at a general conference. Is it by vote? It is, it is by vote. Mm. It is by vote. And if you went to my conference and took a vote from the conference, um, they would vote overwhelmingly to change the discipline. Mm. It wouldn't be 100%, but mm. you get a majority vote. Mm. But as you move into Methodism around the country, uh, the further east you go, the further the more conservative it becomes. Mm. So you'll have whole conferences voting against it, mm. except, you know, conferences send representatives. It's voted on by the representatives that oh. come to the, the general conference. So conferences are very careful about who they, mm. um, who they nominate to go. You wow. want them to represent the political, mm. and it is a political issue. Yeah. It yeah. is highly political. Mm as well as in many people's minds highly doctrinal oh yeah okay very much so but then you but then Sean you get out of the um, this the United States and you go to the rest of the world where United Methodism is and you get to Africa and Asia and many other places and it's overwhelmingly conservative on this issue and they have representation to at general conference oh. so when all this comes up for a vote you can see what's going to happen. Wow. It's probably anything, any proposed changes may well just get voted down wow. unless they find a way to work a compromise. Wow. So the Commission on the Way Forward is trying to find a way to compromise on this issue and basically say, listen, it's time we move ahead in our thinking mm -hmm. about this whole dynamic of human personality and sexuality. Mm -hmm. It's time that we truly um, recognize uh, sexuality as a very personal preference and a personal issue. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree with our bishop on this issue, um, and he'll talk a lot about the fact that we need to be focusing on mission and ministry and not let this continue to be 
a distraction because this could lead to the split of the church. Sure. You, you might have the whole middle part staying together, but the, the real progressives on the left mm -hmm. will leave. Mm -hmm. And the really ultra-conservative on the right, they'll leave because they'll feel like they didn't get what they wanted. Yeah. Does this make sense? It'll be a three-for-one split. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And I think we'll probably lose people over this. In the <clears throat> world of Protestant Christianity, then, it sounds like Methodism in general, United Methodists, are considered more liberal, more liberally minded than maybe the uh, Presbyterians. Could we say that in general? If you, if you go, if you're compared us to, to exa for example, to the Presbyterian Church USA, yeah. we're, we're pretty much in the same okay. approach. Right. But there are, there are conservative Presbyterian yes. groups that broke off of the main group yeah. that decided to go much more conservative on this, these issues. And yeah. I, I have good friends that are a part of those groups and mm. have worked with them and, and, and so forth, and they just have a different view on this. Yeah. And they ultimately appeal to scripture yeah. to present their point of view. Within the United Methodists, it sounds like, from what I'm hearing from you and talking to you a little bit, that it's a little bit more cerebral in addition to the biblical. It's not just, the Bible says this, you know, it sounds like you guys look at science and research and, and you say we got to get progressive a little bit with it. Yeah, you're, you're very perceptive and I, um, in fact, John Wesley, it actually wasn't Wesley, it was a guy um, named um, um, Albert Outler hmm. who developed this out of Wesley's theology and I'll see if I can get all four of these, okay. Um, you, um, you have your history, okay, um, and you need to learn from your history, okay. You have um, um, the Bible, which is central. You need to learn from the Bible. Okay. Um, you need logic. You have to be able to look at things and think about them hmm. logically. Mm -hmm. Wesley was very strong in, into logic hmm. as well as faith. Hmm. And then um, the, the fourth one um, had to do with personal experience. Hmm. You have to filter in your, because he taught, he was a pretty good sociologist. Everybody grows up in a different way, depending yeah. on who they are and, mm -hmm. and um, where they're at. And, and so you've got all these, he's got these four dynamics. Mm -hmm. And so he had a very strong practical theology. He would bring together all of these things. Wow. Yeah, I like and that. that's one thing I appreciate about our tradition. Yeah, is that, and, he, and actually to say it more accurately, Sean, he really believed that it's like a tripod. You've got the 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 base of the tripod, like if you look at the cameras mm -hmm. um, around us, the base of the tripod is the Bible. That's the foundational part, mm -hmm. and and then you've got uh, history and experience and reason as the three got legs. It. Wow. And I often keep that in mind when I'm writing sermons. Wonderful. Uh, and to you guys at home, many of you are still looking for a, a church, especially in this state, after you leave uh, Mormonism or whatever. And, and so now you're hearing. This is sort of uh, a non-pitch pitch that you're hearing uh, what, what goes behind the thinking, at least in United Methodist Church. So you're in college. Yes. Uh, and, then, and then afterward? And 
and I never really got out. <laughs> <laughs> it was Michigan State after all. <laughs> well, I got out and then I went went to seminary and um, and then uh, got married uh, near the very end of my seminary um, time, and um, I've I've been married two times, mm -hmm. and um, obviously my second wife is with me here in the, mm -hmm. the studio. And uh, her name's Deb, and we have. She had two kids in her first marriage, and I had two in mine, and we've had four together, so we have a total of eight children and eleven grandchildren. Wow! And um, but after to kind of fill in the, the time there a little bit, um, I actually came back to Arizona. Um, well, I'd served in Arizona for five years, and I went back to Michigan State and got my PhD. Um, in um, higher education and a, a lifelong learning and adult learning because I was really interested as I shared with you about faith development mm -hmm. and how adults continue to process and learn and grow in their faith mm -hmm. and um, it was a really great program and a, and a great time um, doing that and then we came back to um, Arizona and I worked um, at a church um, United Methodist Church in downtown Mesa, Arizona, and I was actually really in charge of adult education, mm. and it was an exciting ministry and a good time. And, and then after that, um, I became interested in getting a little more skilled in counseling, and I, I did an internship for a couple of years um, with a place called Interfaith Counseling Service, mm. and um, became a part of the American Association of Pastoral Counselors. And then when I was done with that experience, um, serendipitously I found my way into the ministry with Native Americans. One of the therapists I worked with said, you know, I work for this small college and have been doing some stuff with them and they're looking for a, a chaplain. Mm. And, um, and I said, well, tell me about that. And so she described the college and uh, the fact that it's a Native American college and there's Native Americans who come from all over the country with their families and they settle there and it's really um, it's really a program where native um, men and women are trained uh, to do ministry um, back on the reservations and and these folks were coming from Canada and New York any and tribe any tribe wow. and there's 586 federally recognized tribes so there's a big well there to draw oh. people from oh. and uh, that that proved to be a just a huge growth time for me personally because I went on, uh, I did take the job as chaplain and I, as I had shared I, with you, I thought oh, I'll just spend a year here. It's a good year to transition to when I grow up and find out what I really want to do. <laughs> and, um, and ended up staying there for 20, 25 years. Eventually Amazing. became president of the, of the college. And it's, it's a small college. It's a Native American college that um, that really focused on trying to work very carefully with native families. Um, native native people um, don't like to come off the reservations if that's where they have grown up, mm. and that's their home. That is their home. Mm. And so, as I began to learn about their culture, and it's just not the Native American culture; it's the culture of the Navajo, the culture of the Dakota, mm. the culture of the Nez Perce the culture of, um, you know, and it's not, it's not the culture of the Dakota, it's the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota. Wow. The three different groups within that group. Wow. And so I had to learn to shut my mouth 
and truly listen and learn. And it took, I think, a long time to really earn and build the trust of Native people. Mm -hmm. And um, but um, and I remain I remain friends with so many of those people even to today. I left there about it. you what you generally could. Uh, and their pain, because um, Native Americans were so destroyed by the European invasion, and it really was an invasion that didn't give a rip about the inhabitants of this country. Mm. And so Native Americans um, were, uh, their culture was taken from them, um, their languages were taken from them. I can tell you horror stories from people that would work in our college from all over the country that um, had been raised in boarding schools and how they would have their hands beat, beaten by rulers if they would speak their own language. Mm. Their culture was taken away from them, stripped from them. Um, and this was a common, this was a common practice. Um, I mean, Native Americans were the only active group in this United States where active genocide was practiced. Wow. The Trail of Tears, mm -hmm. thousands died. Um, the viruses put in blankets, smallpox, on purpose to infect Native Americans wow. and they would die. Um, wholesale murder and, and uh, villages, this, this went on a, a, great, a great deal. Uh, at one point in time, the number of Native Americans got as low as 200,000 in the United, what we would think of as the United States. Started at? Well, there were millions when it started. Wow. The uh, diseases that we imported from Europe just decimated Native, Native people. Wow. And one of the great tragedies, um, somebody has said that Christianity, it's a historian, Christianity um, when it comes to Native American, Native American people was the, the greatest uh, missionary failure wow. in the history since day one of the faith. Wow. And I really do agree with that after working within that and studying that for, for many, many years. That's Native, something to really consider. It's, it, it, really, it really is. Yeah. And, and you had, you had the, the army and you had, um, you had the church and the missionaries all walking hand in hand. And that's not to say there weren't missionaries who were not concerned about Native people. They were, but they were carrying out the bigger agenda, mm -hmm. which was not to help Native people be independent at that, in the earlier times anyway. It was, it was really to acculturate Native Americans, make them little, nice little Europeans. Oh, God. It's a, it's a really awful history if you learn it accurately. In that woundedness, is there a lot of anger then? A lot of anger. A lot of anger, I, and you don't have to scratch deep to find that, that anger. Mm. Um, I became close to a lot of Native American people, and they would share still about the anger and, and even the rage they, they feel about how their culture mm -hmm. was, was taken away. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I had interesting encounters in the classroom, especially in the beginning, where I had made certain assumptions and I thought I was pretty perceptive, but I'd made certain assumptions about their culture and about Native people. Mm. And um, 
trying trying to bring, for example, Western psychotherapy mm. into the understanding of Native American culture. Mm. Um, I thought I could do pretty well with that. Mm. And as I shared with you about the one student that stood up in class one day and raised his hand and he said, um, I don't remember what he called me, maybe just Larry, but he said, Larry, he said, you don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he said it stronger than that. <laughs> I, I told you the more st stronger version of that at dinner. <laughs> so with that difficulty of, for instance, bringing in you know, our psychobabble, uh, whatever, into the Native Americans, then can we say the same thing about bringing our Christianity into their spiritual life? Is it, is it difficult? It's, it's um, you know, that's a really good question. And um, because when I, when I got to the college, I, I learned that there were certain um, denominations, more conservative denominations. Um, I'd call them almost uh, fundamentalist denominations that believed that it was their job to go out and convert native people. Um, and you could not let any native culture be a part of that. Um, in other words, they, in their mind, they, they split Western Christianity completely from wow. another person's cultural experience. Wow. Not realizing that what they were bringing was their own cultural version yeah. of Christianity. Exactly. See what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, and that never dawned on them, it, seem, it seems like. It doesn't dawn on them. It doesn't no, dawn on we, us. We deal with that issue a lot ourselves. That's in, right. In other contexts. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, the answer to your question is really interesting. At the college, we welcome the Native tribes to bring their practices. So we would have them, we welcome dance. Mm. Um, we welcomed um, the pipe, mm. okay. Um, we welcomed their mm. rituals, okay as part of our worship services. When you say the pipe, do you mean just the pipe, or is that peyote? I mean, do you mean anything like that, that that's part of their culture? We, when, we, when I would say the pipe, it would mean the peace pipe oh, okay. as a symbol of, of wholeness and inclusivity. And quite honestly, everybody in the group would, would smoke oh, the I pipe. See. All right. And uh, we, we did have some of our students who were part of the, the peyote cult and um, they would they would and that's a religion unto itself yeah. and, and they would they were involved in that we didn't really encourage that I see yeah that got us into more issues than, than yeah. not yeah it can be very dangerous yeah. right uh, the, the thing that's interesting to me is is I think you know this about us uh, uh, Larry is that we uh, we we preach a subjective faith we preach it's between you and God and whatever you bring into the table with that whatever you decide is there, I mean, it's so liberal, but that's really what you're also saying is that you've, you allowed them to bring in their culture and you said, bring what you have. And that is so anathema to the, uh, the mindset of the typical American evangelical. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yeah. Wow. They, they, may, they may say bring it in, and, but they don't really no. practice that in, in reality, exactly. So, so springboarding off that, can I ask, are you dogmatic about anything? <laughs> I'm I'm dogmatic about diversity <laughs> Isn't that, yeah. and inclusivity. Wow! And really, I am. Yeah. And um, I think my wife would agree with me on that. You know. Yeah. Um, because I really do believe in in, in diversity and and um, and inclusivity. Mm -hmm. And I, 
Um, and I think, I think John Wesley, given his own cultural limitations, was really that way. But more than that, I think our Lord and Savior was that way. Yeah, I think so. You know, yeah. I think he, he, he reached out and the barriers dropped around him. Yeah. And um, it, it was our Lord who was uh, em embraced inclusivity of, of every, every kind. Mm. And, you know, Wesley's strong, um, I think I'm dogmatic about grace. Okay. Grace. Yeah. Because I really do believe that God loves everyone yeah. unconditionally. Yeah. And that you know, we have to certainly make judgments at times about behavior. So behavior has to be held accountable. Sure. But I think the grace of God goes to everyone mm. equally mm. and uh, without, without, you know, judgment. Mm. I really believe that. That's beautiful. And I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, ha having said that. Yeah, uh-oh. Go ahead. I'm in a denomination that's really fairly structured yeah. and I think I live with this tension all the time between mm -hmm. being a, ordained in a denomination that's, that's hierarchical, begin with a bishop and you work your way down and it's very, very, very structured. Mm -hmm. that, that empowers us with good things and it also sometimes can become a roadblock mm -hmm. and I think navigating through that kind of terrain has been one of the challenges of being a a clergy in the United Methodist Church. Hmm. It's certainly not all perfect, but it's not all bad either. Mm -hmm. There's good things. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that um, with all your experience, starting as a young kid, traveling and seeing different cultural life as a child, that's, that really affects somebody. And then your education level, and then the experience with the Native Americans, that you still are willing to exist in a hierarchical structure of religion. Yeah. That amazes that, me to some extent. And the only reason I think I can do that is because in reality, beyond that structure, in the local church, local United Methodist Church, the, the pastor can exercise great influence on in how that church is going to run. Oh. You have a lot to say about oh. what's going to happen. Yeah. You don't have complete reign, yeah. um, but you do have a lot of flexibility to do the kind of ministry you, you, want, mm -hmm. you want to do. Yeah, and that's yeah. good. And, and the benefits of it, you know... I don't talk much about the benefits, but there are. <laughs> I know there are. Uh, I won't push you on that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your grace. <laughs> okay, so uh, there is one thing before we get to the family. How are we doing on time? Is that 40 minutes? Man, I could talk to uh, Dr. Reverend Pastor Larry for hours. Uh, uh, one thing I want to I pitch to you, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. From a biblical perspective, Adam and Eve were married in the fact that Eve was taken from his side, and we don't have any, per we don't have any ceremony go on there at all. Yeah. But pastors imply that we do, that God married them, but they were one, right? And it seems like from the biblical model, when Sarah told Abraham, um, take Hagar, he, yeah. a pastor didn't come down and marry them, that he went into the tent and he, he had relations with them. Right, her. exactly. If the they marriage were known, the word is known. Known, they, right? They, they knew right. each other. Exactly. Yeah, right. And, and it's the two becoming one, and all that. That and, and so it seems like biologically and biblically, that is our definition of marriage: is that when the two become one. Yes. Yeah. So the way I approach this, and I really want to hear your honest response to this, is that when it comes to same-sex marriage, I say, I'm, get married. 
but from a biblical Christian perspective, it's impossible for me to marry you because the marriage is in the union of the two becoming one. Yeah, yeah. And so I just want to hear your thoughts about that approach to this from the campus perspective. Never, I've never thought of it quite that way, but I understand exactly what you're, what you're saying. Okay. So many of our, you know, under, so much of our understanding about marriage is, uh, it's our rules. Yeah. We, we've made the rules. Yeah. Okay, they've been developed going back literally to the times of the Romans and, and even earlier, I mean, our own understanding of marriage and, and, um, and how we do it. And mm -hmm. again, people don't often realize that, you know, sociologically here, there's a whole framework that we've, we just take in and breathe like it's no normal and natural. It's yeah. not normal and no. natural because people do this stuff differently all over the world from yes. the tribal level on up. Yes. And um, so I understand what you're what you're saying. I and I don't really have an issue with that. Okay. I don't. No, fundamentally, I do not. I that makes sense to me. Yeah. I never thought of it quite that way, but okay. I understand what you're saying. Okay. Good. That that, yeah. that means yeah. something. And it's not that I wouldn't say a couple who is uh, gay are here. I would say they're married. We have couples who support our ministry yes. who are married. Yes. They're civilly uh, married, and that's fine with me. Yeah. Fine. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And in my the last church I served, not the one I'm in now, but we were. Um, we had many gay gay couples, and uh, same thing. Mm -hmm. And um, many were just together as partners, mm -hmm. living together. They've been get together a long time. Many mm -hmm. had had a civil ceremony. Many were married. Yeah. Some were married. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Officially, they've gone Th to do that. Thanks for that feedback. Uh, so you go, you and your lovely wife Deb, you do a Brady Bunch, and you've got 47 kids between you. You've got eight. You. And, and, your, and your wife is similar to you in education, worldview it seems like. Liberal, I'm just gonna say it, you guys are more liberal. You had a son come to you. He's been raised in the church. And this is where it gets interesting, folks. He says, I, I, I have a bunch of LDS friends. I'm gonna join the church. And then he goes on and he says, I'm going to serve a mission for the Mormon church. And you and your wife gave him your blessing. Yes, we did. Can you tell us about that for the benefit of other parents whose children leave Christianity, join the Mormon church, typically because of a, a girl, a guy, or friends, and their fears, I get the calls, mm -hmm. they just freak out. Mm -hmm. So what can we pass on to them from you? <laughs> I don't know if it'll help or hurt. Okay. <laughs> agree probably with with us for that maybe Not some me. will believe that we should have told them no. you know but so it, long and the short of it is junior became more and more interested and finally made um, we talked with him and he came to us and said I'd really would like to join and I took a deep breath and I, you feel led by this if you feel led in your own self um, then you need to continue with with your um, your own sense of direction Wow. And so we, we did walk the journey with him and wow. went uh, to a lot of his activities. We, we went to his baptism, uh, as well as a good number of his family who were there with him. And um, I, we made many good friends in, in the Mormon church. Mm. And, um, and we, they're still friends with us today. Mm. And, um, and then eventually uh, came to the, the training center and uh, studied language for a few weeks, and and then he set off on his mission to um, Argentina. Wow! 
So that's the first part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I didn't leave things out there. <laughs> uh, the, the first part of the story, uh, I, I, um, because of what we do in the ministry in this state and have dealt with literally, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of Mormon parents. And uh, I just cannot uh, applaud you and Deb enough for your approach uh, because it gave him the freedom. And even if Larry was still LDS and active and he lived his until his dying day in that way, you gave him the freedom to make that decision, pursue it, and you loved him. You oh, loved yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. Some don't. The, the, you know, whatever he would choose, we would love him. And uh, whatever lifestyle he would choose, we would love him. Yeah. Um, because of who he is. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Wow. Uh, you, you know, he's, he's 21, 22, thank you. I have never heard him swear one yeah. time in his life. Yeah. That's an honest statement. Uh huh. I don't, don't think I Don't ask heard them if they heard me swear. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it is. Uh, I've been out as a pastor with Larry and had a drink, and he didn't drink. <laughs> so I, this guy blows my mind in terms of his unique individualism. Yeah. That, that is something I'm astounded by uh, with Larry. Well, you're right, and that's one of the things I've learned about him that I... I think I came to understand was how independent and individual he really is mm -hmm. in his in his thinking, and I can remember now looking back and seeing him go off in directions that, you know, well, boy, I don't think I'd ever do that, you mm. know, for one reason or another. But mm. yeah, he's a very independent thinker. And with that independent mind, tell the rest of the story. Larry went out on the mission, and then he the light came on for him. He did. He went. He went out on the mission. And uh, he went to Argentina, and I think maybe even a little bit before he went, he was beginning to have some serious um, doubts mm. about some of the beliefs of the, the Mormon church. Mm. And I think a lot of these uh, doubts centered around um, Joseph Smith mm. and, and some of the related uh, teachings um, of the church and, and doctrine and covenants. And he began to question those, and of course he can articulate that far better than I can. Mm -hmm. And um, and he also, I have to say, was was reading a lot of the stuff from a guy named Sean McCraney. Poor guy. Okay. <laughs> and this was going to have a huge influence um, on on him. Mm -hmm. um, and let me just say it now, so I don't forget it, um, is that you've had an unbelievable influence on, on him. And one of the reasons he moved here, Sean, mm. was to, be, um, to get to know you. He came up on his own. He wanted to meet you. He wanted to talk to you. He mm. wanted to know about your ministry. And he's, he's still here. And uh, here we are sitting here right now and having this, this conversation. But you have been a huge factor and influence in his life. And so has your family. Mm. Been a so blessing thank to you. Us. Thank you. Oh, you're, you're welcome, and thank you. Absolutely. So what happened was he got in Argentina, and he began to seriously question his, his decision, I think, to become a Mormon. Um, and uh, as I look back, all of this happened so quickly. I don't know if he really ever had a chance to take all of this in and, and process it and come to the conclusion that he finally came to as he was heading um, into the, uh, South America. 
so as I understand the story and is that he, he, he got there and we had a couple conversations with him on, on the phone and uh, he said, you know, I really wanted to do mission work. I'm a missionary, I wanted to do mission work, but all I'm doing is expected to go out and convert people and, you know, add up the totals kind of a thing. And he said, that's not really what I'm interested in. Mm. And then he began to have some uh, doubts about Mormon um, uh, theology and, and, and belief. And I know he had an experience with one of, one of the, uh, was it a bishop, Larry? Bishop down Mission there? President. Mission president. Mission president, okay. And, and he went to him and, and said he was having some struggles with, with some of the beliefs and he was encouraged by the mission president to go back and, and pray for a week and um, everything would clear up and everything would be fine. So Larry goes away and he prays for a week and comes back in a week and he said, you know, I'm, I'm really not feeling it and this, this isn't gonna work for me. <laughs> and um, so he was challenged by the mission president in a somewhat of a derogatory way. He said, do you, do you think you're better than the prophet? <laughs> and um, I think Larry may have came close to swearing then, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, That's a standard and, he said, MO. I, and he said, I don't think I should stay. Wow. Yeah, and so, Larry got in touch with us, and uh, the, and the, they finally made a decision down there. Yeah, you really do need to go back because mm. you're you're not quite in sync with the program. Yeah, and so so he came back, and um, and he came back, and and um, he'd probably have to tell about how he felt about all of that exactly. Yeah, um, how did you feel about him coming back? Was there any sense well, of relief? It's, it's interesting. Um, I had a couple, if I'm honest, I had a couple different reactions. One was relief. Mm -hmm. One was relief mm -hmm. because I was feeling, and I think certainly Deb was feeling, we're, we're glad that you rethought this and made a decision not, not to continue into this journey. Because even though I personally didn't agree with, mm -hmm. with what he was learning and I didn't agree with the Mormon church, mm -hmm. he had made he had made it, he had followed his own heart, he had made a decision. Mm -hmm. And so the downside of it was for me is you can't fulfill kind of what you decided you were going to do for two years. Yeah. But in the end, that feeling was here and the other feeling yeah. was here. Yeah. So they weren't comparable wow. in, in, in any way. And so then he, he, he has come back and I, I've just seen him grow and, and develop in so many ways. And I, and I will say one thing. He was not particularly interested in religion or the Bible until his friends began to show him about Mormon, uh, Mormonism. And it's through the back door or the basement door or whatever, but he found his way into learning about the Bible and about religion um, through Mormonism. Wow. Even though he didn't come out to where they stand in their beliefs. He has grown by leaps and bounds. God does work in mysterious yes. ways. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. That is, that is really uh, wonderful. Um, final, we have an audience. You may know, uh, Dr. Norris, that um, they've, a lot of them have been burned by religion. A lot of them, it doesn't nec not necessarily Mormonism. Uh, they, they teeter on atheism. All the, the different... Um, 
um, religions and different ways of thinking about God. He said the least creative, the least creative that offers nothing is atheism. Hmm. And, and he, so, wasn't he an atheist though? No. He, he was an uh, well, was, it, was he an atheist? I thought he was an atheist, but maybe I'm wrong. He just passed, right? He just, he just, he just passed. Yeah, I thought, well, I could be wrong on that. Yeah, okay. No, okay, but that's um, interesting that he would even say that. Yeah, it, it is, it is. Wow. So, you know, what I, what I would say is don't, uh, don't give up. Don't, do not give up. Continue to search and find a place where you can live out what you feel and believe in terms of, of your heart. Your show here is called Matter of the Heart, and I think the heart is a huge part yeah. of what people need to follow. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I think there is as many wacko religious, you know, groups mm -hmm. in what I would call fundamentalism as there are in the other side of liberalism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I would say seek a church, find a church, and there's lots of different churches that give different expressions to how you live your faith and how they understand dogma, but keep, keep searching, keep looking, and find something ultimately that I believe reflects who Jesus Christ is, mm. who reflects Christ. Mm. Um, if you want to know who um, God is, look at Jesus Christ mm. and find something that works for you then. Mm. And there's no magic recipe, mm. but that's certainly what I would encourage. Mm. Be true to yourself, be true to what you believe, keep searching. Can't thank you enough. You've inspired me and uh, taught me many things sitting here. And uh, grateful for you and Deb and the son. All the children you've raised don't know them, but I do know Larry. And uh, he's a blessing to the ministry. And um, and he's a he's a someone who is authentic. And I you can't beat that. And I love it. So thank you so much, Sean. Thank you. Right. Thank you for this opportunity to sit with you. I've appreciated this very much. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you for your ministry. And for Thank your you family. For yours. Thank you.